Turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. The the passage is found in your bulletin insert, and uh, there should be as well a Bible on the back table. If you uh, don't own a Bible, we invite you to take that Bible home with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. For the sake of review, and uh, for those of you who may be visiting or weren't here the last couple weeks, we've started this study of the book of of Nehemiah, a story that takes place at a time in history when God is restoring his people, the ancient people of Israel, he's restoring them to the land of promise, the land that he promised to give them that they would live long there before he disciplined them by sending them into exile, into Babylon and other foreign places. And slowly they are returning, bit by bit, wave by wave, after many years away, after many years of sorrow, many of them, they are returning to the land of promise. And during this time and in the Lord's providence, as the Lord weaves history together for His ultimate purposes, which are found in Jesus he positions this man, Nehemiah, this historical figure in working in the courts of Persia, the king of Persia. He situates this man, Nehemiah, as a man of influence, much like uh, Moses was raised up by God, as a man of influence. And the Lord gives Nehemiah a heart, a burden for his name. Not Nehemiah's name, but the Lord's name. And the honor of his people, the honor of his city. Because Jerusalem, the city that had been sacked many years before, is in disrepair. God's work is stalled. And Nehemiah feels that he must act. He must step into this situation. And so as we looked at last week, those of you who are here, chosen by God as one to stand in the gap. Remember? An intercessor. One who God raised up throughout history, pointing to that ultimate one that he would raise up, our Lord Jesus, who would stand in the gap for us. Nehemiah prayerfully stepped out in faith and walked in faith and uh, receives permission to go to Jerusalem. Now, up until this point in the story, we're not very far, but Nehemiah hasn't even seen the city. He hasn't even seen the walls or what was left of the walls, this city that he has been burdened about for so long. And so today we find ourselves in the, the part of the story where Nehemiah is just arriving at the city that he has been burdened for in God's grace. And so let me read Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 9. Starting at verse 9, going down through the end of the chapter. This is God's holy word. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, And I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one that I rode on. 
I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that, I was, that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley, and I expected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned." And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we are his servants. We will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. For such a time as this. For such a time as this. This was the phrase that was used to describe Esther. The familiar character Esther, who actually preceded Nehemiah, but it's a phrase that we can and have already applied to Nehemiah himself. As we've looked at just the first chapter of this story, we've looked at his prayer. We've seen his representation of the people before the king's throne. And we have seen that Nehemiah is a man uniquely gifted by the Lord to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world, just like Esther. But even more pointedly than that, Nehemiah shows us Jesus. Nehemiah shows us Jesus, as one that was burdened for the Lord's honor, as one that was willing to step down from the glory that he was experiencing in order to experience the brokenness of his people, he points to our Savior. He points to the Lord Jesus. And of course, in the the grand scope of redemptive history, Nehemiah is being used by God to bring about that Jesus. We're thousands of years before he will come, and yet Nehemiah is being used as one to restore, as one to uh, protect the line of promise from which the Messiah will come. I begin here again just because I don't want you to forget the gospel and the grand narrative which Nehemiah is just a small part of. But this morning, once again, we learn through Nehemiah. God gives us through Nehemiah some wonderful principles of what it takes to do God's work. 
We might call it the nuts and bolts of God's work. And so that's where I want our focus to be this morning. Once again, not necessarily on Nehemiah. Oh, look how great Nehemiah is. He's the man. But what God is doing through Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a leader par excellence. And a lot of what we see is going to be able to be applied to leaders specifically. And yet God's Word speaks to all of us this morning. We're not all pastors, we're not all elders, we're not all deacons, but we are husbands, we are fathers, we are mothers, we are teachers, we are bosses, we are so many things. And that's just us individually, because collectively, corporately, we are the church. We are God's intended vessel to bring about His redemptive message to the world. And, and so collectively, we are Ascension Presbyterian Church. We are part of the Church of Jesus Christ all over the world. And so as we work through this passage for the next few minutes, I want us to hear its message in, in four points. We're going to kind of frame our thinking around four truths, exhortations, encouragements, whatever you want to think about them this morning. And in many ways, we're reiterating, I'm rebuilding on what was already laid last week. Especially with this first point. And it's this, God's work begins with God. God's work begins with God. We've already seen this illustrated for us in chapter 1. As Nehemiah, the man of God, upon hearing of the destruction of Jerusalem, the falling apart of God's work, he falls to his knees. He repents. He claims God's promises. And he offers himself for God's service, whatever that may be. And this morning's passage is, is no different. It's, it's easy, I think, for us to read. We talked about this a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. We talked about this a little bit in parish group. It's easy for us to think that Nehemiah just jumped on a flight from Susa to Jerusalem, and he's there, right? After all, we read verse 8, we read his request, and then in verses 9, 10, and 11, he's rolling into town. Boom, he's there. But of course, that's not the reality of it. That's not the reality of ancient travel. The journey from Susa to Jerusalem, particularly the path that it's thought that Nehemiah took, was 800 to 900 miles. And this isn't by plane, this isn't by train, this isn't by automobile, this is by horse, mule, camel. With all the supplies that he carried, with all the army that he brought with him by the command of the king, it was a journey that was three to four months. So we have a three to four month gap between those two verses. And Nehemiah arrives after these several months of travel. He arrives in Jerusalem. No doubt he's been thinking. He's been praying on the trail. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and what does he do? He doesn't start his task. He waits he, for three days. We don't know what he does. But he says that for three days... He was there. Well, what did he do in those three days? We can speculate. He probably rested. 
It's a long journey. He needed to rest. He needed to recoup. But I think also Nehemiah, consistent with his character, Nehemiah is beginning with God. He's finally arrived at his destination. There's much work to be done, but he's, he's in no rush. He's thinking. He's planning. He's spending time with the Lord. And he's likely praying over the fact that his welcoming committee was not the mayor of Jerusalem that's ready to give him the key to the city. No, his welcoming committee can, consisted of two men of influence in that region who were not happy that he was there. So I think the first thing that Nehemiah reminds us is that God's work begins again with God. God's work begins on our knees, as I said it last week. Nehemiah couldn't do life on his own. He knew he couldn't do this work alone. He knew that his leadership, that God's work, began with God. And it's no different for us. Whether we are mothers, whether we are in sales, our work begins with God. This is true individually, and it's even more true corporately as we gather as God's people. If God's kingdom is going to come, if God's church is going to be built, then we need to be on our knees. The Westminster Larger Catechism are confessional standards that we hold to in the Presbyterian Church. In the Larger Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, a teaching tool with questions and answers, has a study of the Lord's Prayer. And question and answer 191 says, what do we pray for in the second petition? We prayed the Lord's Prayer early in the service. The second petition. The first one is, hallowed be thy name. The second is, thy kingdom come. Listen to this answer. In the second petition, thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. Purged from corruption. Countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those who are yet in their sins, to the confirming, the comforting, and building up of those who are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of His second coming and are reigning with Him forever and ever, that He would be pleased to exercise the kingdom of His power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends." Now, I know I read that fast. I know you didn't understand it all. But I wanted you to just feel the weight of at least these church fathers who sat and wrestled for many, many months and put together this answer in that little phrase, Thy kingdom come. This is what we pray for. Tonight, I'm going to try to flesh this out a little bit as we go to prayer for the gospel. As we go to prayer for God's church to be built through the work of evangelism, and what that means for us. So the challenge for us first is just the challenge of last week. Are we praying for God's work 
to be done? Are we praying for our church? Are we praying that the Lord would establish the work of our hands in Edmonds, in Linwood, in Bothell, in Everett? As we move to the second truth, we take a step back in the account that we just read. Why again did Nehemiah get to this place? How did he get to this place of leaving this secure job of being cupbearer to the king to suddenly standing amidst broken walls? Well, the answer is the second truth I think we can focus on today. And it's this, God's work requires a God-centered vision. God's work requires a God-centered vision. Vision is that quality that, that doesn't accept the status quo, that, that is dissatisfied with what is. I once heard it defined as the refusal to accept the unacceptable. The refusal to accept the unacceptable. And for Nehemiah, that unacceptable came the moment his brother came with the words about what was facing the people of Jerusalem. And that was enough for him. Something had to be done. God's name was being disgraced. And when we read in our passage this morning of Nehemiah casting this God-centered vision, which is another component of of something we need to be able to do, is not just to have a God-centered vision, but be able to cast that vision, to be able to share that vision with others. As he cast this vision to rebuild in verse 17, he states that we may no longer suffer derision. After all, Jerusalem was God's city. The Israelites were God's people. The psalmist in the first verses of Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God is holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. For behold, the kings assembled. They came together and as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. And the psalmist rejoices in that picture of Jerusalem. Well, there's no panic now. There's no panic among foreign kings. And Nehemiah knows that now there's jeering, now there's accusations that Israel's God was no God at all. That Israel's God was for, that Israel's people, the people of Israel were forgotten by their God. Nehemiah sees what is. He has a view to what should be and what could be, what needs to be, and it consumes him. It it radically changes and alters the course of his life. Again, lest we praise Nehemiah too much, remember this this is all by God's grace. He even says it, God had put it in his heart to do this. The hand of God has been upon me for good, he says to the people. This is God's vision. Get on board, people, he says. They're not rallying around him. They're not rallying around Nehemiah and his his charismatic personality. If indeed he did have one, we don't know. No, he reminds them of the hand of God that is not disciplining now, but is now on him for good. As we say, the Lord is opening up doors. 
Doors are flying open for Nehemiah. And he is boldly walking through. This is God's work. This is God's vision. Nehemiah has it. And he shares it with the people. It's so much bigger than one person. You see the trouble we are in, he cries. And so now I turn the challenge to us as we think about the church. Are we seeing the need around us? What needs need to be rebuilt in our midst? Do we notice the brokenness around us? Casualties of war that need to be cared for in this way or in, in that way. What, what and where is your vision today, people of God? You see, there is an overarching grace that compels all of us. As Nehemiah was compelled for the honor of the name of Yahweh, we are compelled by the love of Christ. Paul says as much. He told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. Brothers and sisters, this is what makes God's cause our cause, is the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus. God's work requires a God-centered vision. But it's not just a vision. That brings us to our third truth. God's work requires prayerful, I'm going to throw that in again, prayerful planning. God's work requires prayerful planning. The point is brief. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. We talked a little bit about it last week. We began to see it last week. God doesn't just call us to, to let go and, and let God He gives us minds to think. He gives us ideas to try, all the while seeking His wisdom and His grace. And that's what leadership does. That's what Nehemiah does. He has a strategy. He arrives in Jerusalem. He knows immediately that he's not welcome. He knows that there's opposition among him. And so he waits. He prays. And he finally goes out in this secret middle-of-the-night, Hollywood-type mission to tackle this project that he's about to begin tackling. What exactly am I going to need? How long is this going to take? Where is the best place to start? And he takes just one animal with him. Probably doesn't want to make a lot of noise. Just a few men alongside of that. At one point, he can't even get through all the rubble. He's probably no doubt discouraged even further, but empowered and motivated even further to fulfill what God was calling him to do. And notice in verse 16, he hasn't even told people, the people who are going to help him, he hasn't even told them that he's here and that he's doing this. 
Not until he has a clear grasp of the problem and a plan on how to solve it. God's work requires prayerful, strategic planning. As we come to the last truth that I want us to think about this morning from this brief passage in Nehemiah, we're reminded that we just simply can't plan for everything. There are unknowns. There are unforeseen obstacles in our way. So the last truth for us to think about is this. God's work requires risk and trust. God's work requires risk and trust. Again, building on what we talked about last week, Nehemiah models for us what it means to walk in faith. This is an enormous task that Nehemiah has ahead of him. The wall of Jerusalem was anywhere between a mile and a half to two miles long, 15 to 20 feet high, three to four feet wide, all stone, no bobcats, no diesel powered cranes. And on top of that, opposition. Opposition. We meet the first two at the very beginning of the story of Nehemiah as they roll into town. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and at the end of our passage, a third musketeer is introduced, Geshem the Arab. And we're not sure of the motivation that these regional, provincial leaders had in terms of opposing the work of God. Perhaps it was political. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria just to the north of the city. Perhaps it was religious. Tobiah was from an idolatrous people, historic enemies of Israel. Maybe it was economic. Geshem had a lot of property, a lot of land under his thumb. Whatever the motivation, they didn't want to give up their power. And so they invited God's people They met God's people with jeers and spite. Right now it's just words, it's just rhetoric, but what may it become? They've got an enormous amount of backbreaking work ahead of them and now they have to look over their shoulders, so to speak, from those around them. You see, this is risky. This is going to require faith. This is going to require trust. Isn't it easier just to... Blend in. Let's not rock the region. Is this, as I consider this, is this, to use our our Christianese, is this what we would call a closed door? I mean, all these doors were opening up for Nehemiah, and then suddenly, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, is this a closed door? It's not. It's not a closed door because Nehemiah is so certain of his call. He is so certain that the work that he is doing is not his work. He's not pursuing his own comfort and pleasure. He is pursuing God's work. And so no, it's not a closed door. 
Nehemiah responds in the hearing of the people, not with a recounting of the fact that the king authorized this, although he did, not with the fact that, don't you see the army that I brought with me from the king? Are you going to mess with me? No, he responds with this wonderful confidence of faith. The God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build. You have no portion. You have no right or claim in Jerusalem. I love that. I love that. No shrinking back, but faith and confidence in God's work and what God is accomplishing. God is at work here. There's no greater motivator than to know that God is at work. A couple years ago, I led a a team of, a small team of teenagers on a missions trip to Africa. And amongst those teenagers, there was some nervousness about going. Many of them had never left the country at all. And now we're flying to Africa, the land of malaria and AIDS and other dangers. And we read some books and we prayed a lot and one of the things that we read that we read challenged us with these two things. Number one, there are some risks that are just right. There are some risks that are just right. How do we know if they're right? If it's God's work. If it's God's cause. And secondly, we are reminded that risk is something that we might experience as creatures, but it's not part of God's experience. There is no risk for God. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, whether we're on a ferry in the Puget Sound, whether we're in a village in the middle of Africa. In God's hands, there is no difference. He's the one who has numbered our days. He's the one who keeps our hearts beating. He's the one who hems us in behind and before. And he's the one from whom we can never flee. What a great promise as we set out to do God's work. And the work of God always has faced opposition. Jesus told us to expect opposition. But with the work of God, it's a risk that is right. It is a risk that's worth taking. I read a great article. World Magazine is a uh, publication, um, and I read a, a great article in World Magazine by one of the writers, the columnists, um, that I really enjoy, and I wanted to read just a portion of it, and it, and it relates to tonight, uh, to what I hope you'll come back and, and uh, wrestle with uh, concerning evangelism. It's entitled, Taking Risks for the Gospel, and this woman writes, Let me have risk-takers around me. Just as a practical matter, let me have Christians who try things that fail, and then try something else. Introduce me to someone who parks near handicapped parking at McDonald's and waits for someone to come along who might need prayer. Send me a friend who would rather make a fool of himself, obeying what he is 80% sure the word commands, than play it safe. Or who supports missionaries beyond his means. 
It seems to me we're always getting ready to share the gospel and then never actually sharing the gospel. We're, we're forever describing it to each other. We fill our notebooks with neat insights from Christian conferences. We are entertained by C.S. Lewis and Bonhoeffer, the very men who warned us against making the gospel an academic problem, which is worth discussing with a good master. Someday we'll be sitting in nursing homes, still mumbling to ourselves the names of Burkhauer and Warfield. We rob each other. How do we rob each other? By not risking anything all day long. So that we give no room to God for the glorious testimonies He is waiting to hand us that we might encourage each other. God is glorified in the demonstration of the difference between our natural ability and His miraculous power. Risk-taking is nothing fancy. Just an everyday pressing into little things that we have no confidence of doing without the help of God. It's a neat article to me. It encouraged me. We're not building a wall here at Ascension. We're not building a wall around Edmonds. It's not the kind of work that God's called us to do. We're building a spiritual house, a holy people. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we might walk in them. And we work because the work is done. Because Jesus has already done the work It's a work that begins with God. It requires a God-centered vision, prayerful planning, and ultimately works by risk and by faith. It's a lot for us to think about this morning, not in regards, again, to pursuing our own comforts and our own pleasures, but in in regards to pursuing what God is doing in the world, what God is doing through our church. How focused are we? Where is our vision? What are we planning for? How are we trusting? We need more leaders like Nehemiah. We need laborers who follow him like God's people followed him. We need to pray for the grace that gave him that heart, that empowered him in his mission and vision, and that began God's work of rebuilding As I was thinking about this passage, as I was thinking about God's work, I was thinking about the last verse of that familiar hymn, This is my Father's world. You know that claim that Nehemiah made to Jerusalem? You have no right or portion here. You have the same claim. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of the gospel. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who died that we might have life. Who gives us boldness and confidence to make this claim about the world that yes, this is our Father's 
world. And Father, we're so timid at times. We're so reluctant at times. Thinking that we somehow are our guests, or, or we don't have the right, or we don't have the, the power. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning that this is your work. And you give the grace. Your hand is upon us. And you will be satisfied as you build your church, as you call all nations to yourself. Father, give us wisdom and insight to know how we fit in that as individuals, as families, as a church body. Father, we pray with the psalmist, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.